Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, threats, tsunamis, and 10 weeks of war on Ukraine. So Ireland and the UK could be wiped out by the Russians. That's the latest threat to Europe from Moscow. And we know Russian threats can become a reality. After days on the razor's edge, Ukraine is now a nation at war. Just hours ago, Russian forces began their attack. President Vladimir Putin warning other countries that any attempt to interfere with the Russian action will lead to, quote, consequences they have never seen. On February 24th, 10 weeks ago, Russia made good on its threat to invade Ukraine. And since then, the horrors of war have played out over our news bulletins, in our newspapers and across social media. Innocent Ukrainians fleeing their homeland, innocent Ukrainians gunned down in the street, mass graves dug in once bustling and happy suburbs, and the ongoing anxieties of what happens next. Here we see a woman with a bike named today as Irina Filkina walking along Yabolanska Street when Russian troops were in control. Around the corner is an armoured vehicle. You can see the vehicle fire, a shot which creates a plume of smoke exactly where Irina was standing with her bike. Despite these atrocities, Ukraine has remained defiant in its global appeal for help, in fighting back and highlighting the devastation inflicted on its towns and cities. Do prove that you indeed are Europeans and then... Life will win over death and light will win over darkness. And its people remain proud, hopeful and courageous in the face of adversity. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today on the Indo-Daily we're talking 10 long and harrowing weeks of war on Ukraine. I'm joined by Declan Power, defence and security expert, and John O'Brennan, professor of EU politics at the University of Maynooth. Radioactive pustinu, nadolga, nirigodnu, 
we need to remember that back to the 1980s and beyond russia had targeted various parts of western europe and uh, you know contrary to popular belief ireland wasn't immune from that targeting because like it or lump it we're considered very much part of the nato sphere of influence if push came to shove ireland wouldn't be able to avoid some sort of a confrontation between nato and uh, russia in western europe i'm talking about back in the old cold war if the russians had poured through the fulda gap and a conflict had escalated uh, there were various things that were in play uh, such as the americans uh, used to hold things well the americans and europeans used to hold things called the red flag exercises which involved the flying over of huge amounts of men and material to meet a russian threat in that period and that plan included refueling over or in Ireland as required for either seaborne craft or airborne craft. The notion that we have somehow been hugely aloof from any potential conflict like this is erroneous. However, to put it into uh, terms that are relevant to us now into today's context, this uh, this statement and this program that uh, we're, we're talking about now on Russian state TV is part of their psychological operations and information operations campaign. It's designed to play to their own audience, to bolster up Russian will that you know, the, the, arm, the muscles are being flexed. It's part of a consistent theme of throwing in uh, references to nuclear weapons to frighten the horses, as it were. It's particularly directed at Britain because they are a major thorn in the side of the Russians at the moment because because Britain, amongst a number of other countries, France, US and some other European countries, not just about the supply of weapons, but the logistical and electronic intelligence support that they are able to provide through their own armed forces, through their air assets that are just across the border. That has been a huge support to the Ukrainians and the Russians know that. So this is pushback. And then, of course, ourselves, because they know we're, we're wobbly on these matters, or certainly we have been. <clears throat> but they're also a bit taken aback at how decisive we have been in our support for Ukraine, politically, economically, even militarily, because it, it shouldn't be forgotten that while we, we were squeamish about the whole idea of, of lethal weapons, we are providing economic support and fuel and other things like that directly to the war effort for Ukraine. So it's to press those buttons and make countries like ours, like Britain, like Germany, all take a pace back or not have the same unity of purpose that we've had. That's what's at the back of this. And John, this level of, of propaganda, and it has increased in recent days, um, kind of targeting uh, particular European cities, uh, including the British Isles. I don't think they even uh, d uh, distinguish between Ireland and, and the UK in terms of their statements. But we can dismiss it as propaganda, yet 
They threatened to invade Ukraine. A lot of us sat on the fence and thought it would never happen, but it did. Well, I think Declan is right that this episode is part of the theatre of the absurd that plays out every night on Channel One in particular in Russia and on Russian television. If anyone from the outside intends to interfere in what's happening, then they should know this. If they create threats for us, threats of a strategic nature, our retaliation, will be instantaneous. This is all part of the Putin propaganda regime. It's been there from the very beginning. I remember a very, very good young British-Russian author called Peter Pomerantsev writing a book called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And he was really talking about the way in which, even in the early days, the Putinites were literally creating new reality. So I don't think we should take this very seriously. It is aimed almost exclusively, I think, at Russians. And I think there's a very clear link between the extreme way in which the rhetoric has developed and how Russian forces are actually doing on the ground, because they are losing, and in my view, losing very clearly, all the more reason that this has got to be packaged and presented in the most absurd ways to the Russian public that Russian forces are actually winning and that ultimately they have all of these weapons that are available to them if the situation were to deteriorate further, including hypersonic missiles and nuclear missiles. I don't think there's a chance in the world that they will be used. And I think there is a difference, a qualitative difference between the very real threat that was evident in 200,000 Russian troops encompassing Ukraine in January and the sort of nightly theatre that has accompanied the war in the weeks that has followed. Let's look back then at the last 10 weeks, because this week marks 10 weeks of war in terms of the invasion on Ukraine. Declan, the cost of destruction on both human lives and Ukraine's infrastructure and cities has been phenomenal. Can you perhaps uh, talk us through some of the more catastrophic events uh, Ukraine has lived through over the last two and a half months? Well, I think perhaps Mariupol sums up the whole experience of Ukraine at the personal level and at the state level. I mean, there, there are other Mariupols, but that's the one in our in our sights. Similar levels of bombardment would have happened elsewhere. And, you know, then you have uh, Busha as well. And there are other Bushas and some we won't know the full story because they will remain under the uh, the Russian boot if they uh, if they keep occupying parts of, of the territory that they hold. And I think what we're seeing from a curious point of view is simply put, the Ukrainians had a huge injection of uh, of morale if you like not 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 to minimize the losses but they they didn't expect to be here themselves mm-hmm. at this point and you know you hear rhetoric now about that they pushed the russians out of all of the donbass and the uh, and the crimea as well which i think i think is rhetoric but it has been a massive win so far if i can use that term whereas the russians uh, not alone uh, did their their intelligence, their military level intelligence appeared to be failing, that they didn't know the capacity of Ukrainian forces and that Ukrainian forces had been hugely bolstered up with NATO training and equipment, but also the capacity of the ordinary Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government to withstand the the onslaught and to fight back. But also the the Russian command and control, which we've always known has never been great. Uh, the way Russians train their soldiers it's uh, is very different to the West. They don't encourage autonomy 
may have thought. Junior officers would not have the level of space for exercising their own initiative on the battlefield as they are trained to do in, in Western contexts. And I think that has been hugely uh, damaging to the Russians. It meant that when they met problems along the way, be they on the battlefield itself, in terms of resistance, or be it in terms of management of logistics, what's known as the tooth to tail ratio, that they just weren't able to pivot in the way that would be expected in NATO trained forces, NATO level forces. And I include our own in that because we train to NATO specifications and our troops have been on NATO led uh, missions in, in recent years, you know, mainly peacekeeping, peace enforcement missions. But there is a requirement of ability and thought for field grade officers in those scenarios. And the Russians don't have it. And it surprised a lot of us who watch these things, but nobody expected them to be so inefficient uh, in, in the way they have performed in Ukraine. And it seems to be the case that they're, they have not engaged in any mass maneuver uh, operations you, uh, where all of their elements uh, had to be brought into play. There's a lot for the Ukrainians to play for. If they can hold the Russians in the Donbass or even push them back a little bit and not let them get any further, you may have a situation where the Russians will feel that they can package up a victory. They've changed, they've, they've sold a, a package to their people that they've changed their strategic objectives, that they've punished Ukraine as a whole and that now they're going to shore up these breakaway republics. That's the narrative that's emerging in Russia. The Ukrainians, they're going to have to probably accept for a period uh, that their some of their territory will be ceded. They won't like that, and but we'll see a, the conflict maybe uh, toned down to a, a low intensity level, similar to the way Syria is now, which will mean a lot more lives will be saved. And I guess, you know, for Ukrainians, that if you're one of the five million who have already fled the country, it's anticipated, I think, that those figures will reach eight million in the coming weeks. Does it feel like there's a, there's a win going on in the country, John? Well, I don't pretend to speak for Ukrainians, but I think Declan is right that Ukrainians themselves have been surprised by the way in which they themselves have responded to the challenge presented by the Russian military assault on their country. Um, prior to the Russian invasion, and over the last 20 years or so, Ukraine has been a pretty disordered kind of place where one political regime has been replaced by another, where there's been lots of corruption. The political class has been um, kind of shot through with... Um, uh, divisions and polarization. So I think for that reason, it's been a surprise to Ukrainians just how well they have responded to Russian predation when it appeared. Part of that, of course, is Zelensky. We will fight as long as it takes to liberate the country. If children are born in shelters, even when the shelling continues, then the enemy has no chance in this undoubtedly people's war to victory, glory to Ukraine. There's no doubt that he's been a rallying figure and a major reason why Ukrainians have stood up to uh, defend their country in the numbers that they have. But the big question, I guess, really relates to um, how the Ukrainian military can hold out. And that in itself, I think, will condition the extent to which people might come back to Ukraine in the near future. I think Ukraine is headed for a very, very uncertain period. But I have no doubt that uh, at a military level, especially with the level of aid that is now flowing in 
from the United States and from its allies in Europe into Ukraine that there's a the potential for a game-changing event on the ground and that the Russian forces might actually not just be pinned down in the Donbass for quite a period. I actually disagree slightly with Declan there. I don't think it's going to be a war of attrition. I think there's every chance that the Ukrainian forces, strengthened immeasurably by the kind of heavy artillery in particular that's coming in now from Western allies, that they could actually succeed in pushing Russian forces out within the next few months. And when we talk about, you know, Ukraine finally getting the kind of military artillery assistance from other countries in Europe, we look at what has been done to date to try and, and you know, rein Russia in a little bit, Declan. I'm talking about the sanctions. Have these worked? And I know that there's new sanctions relating to oil and gas now as well. But do they make any difference at all to this uh, particular conflict? Well, they do. But and just before I go into that, I, just to go back to John, I hope I hope you're proved right, John. Uh, and I, I think you, you I think you may be. I just tend to be more of a, a natural pessimist in, in some of these matters. With regards to the sanctions, the belief always was that that was more of a long term thing. If you think about it just in terms of what was being said there in, in John's contribution, that's kind of the immediate reality. One of the things that really can help contribute to a Ukrainian victory and a long-term victory are the sanctions, because Russia's ability to make war is directly proportional to, you know, its war machine is directly connected to its economic uh, heart, if you like. And the sanctions are a slow drip. They're, they're, They're going to erode that capacity, particularly if what appears to be happening happens. And now if the Germans and other European countries that were dependent on Russian energy pivot away from that in the in the near future. And the Russians will see that that won't just affect their ability to prosecute operations in Ukraine. It, it, you know, it mightn't even directly impact on them in the, in the immediate, but it will impact on Russian ability to project power and prosecute operations in general in the future. John, we started talking about the propaganda machine and and perhaps we we can finish the conversation uh, on the same matter. Should we be worried at all or how does this end now, do you think? Well, I think this war proves that the West was really wrong to be in any way fearful of Russia. This is, remember, a state whose economy coming into the war was only the size of that of Spain. That economy has contracted or will contract this year by about 20%, the estimates show. But it's not just that. If you look at Russian military spending, Russia has spent about $75 billion a year on defense and security in recent years, compared to 10 times that amount by the United States. China, which began seriously spending money on its military about 15 years ago, now spends about 220, 230 billion a year, dwarfing anything that the Russians spend. So all the evidence shows, both in relation to those data and the Russian military performance on the ground, that there really is nothing to be fearful of. There is an asymmetry of power that is entirely in favor of NATO and the West. And I think we should keep that in mind when we think about strategy towards Russia, whether it's military or economic. Economic sanctions are really beginning to bite, I think, internally in Russia. And the way in which they're really going to matter is obviously in respect of an oil and gas embargo. And we're moving much closer to that now in the European Union than 
at any point in the last 10 weeks. Um, but it's also about technology transfer. Uh, for a whole raft of areas in the Russian economy, there's this great dependence on Western technology, and much of that has been cut off. So all of that is kind of cascading and intersecting simultaneously in Russia, and that has to matter. But in the wider sense, where we're talking about the propaganda war, uh, we should recognize that um, this has had an internal dimension aimed at the Russian population. They want to keep people as fearful as possible. And in the current context, the emphasis they place on denazification of Ukraine, it may seem ludicrous to us, but it does play well with Russians who've been brought up on this notion of winning the great patriotic war against Western forces. Remember that on Sunday, the 9th of May, Russians will commemorate the great patriotic war. Putin may or may not declare victory in Ukraine. I think that's irrelevant in the longer term. Um, so I, I really don't think there's any need to fear Russia at any level, economically, militarily, or in respect of propaganda. And I think that has to feed through into strategy in both the European Union and in the United States uh, before we really get to grips with some of the problems that are going to emerge from the potential collapse of Russia, because I think that's what's coming next and what is much more fearful, which is the entire systemic collapse of the Putin regime. Everything that's built up, been built up over the last 30 years or so could collapse in a way that will make the 1990s look very timid indeed. Well, my thanks there to John O'Brennan, Professor of EU Politics at the University of Maynooth and Declan Power, Defence and Security Expert. I'm Siobhan Maguire and today's Indo-Daily episode was presented and produced by myself with research by Garrett Mulhall and Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy and sound design by Dara Kelly. Archive clips from independent.ie, CNN, Sky News, MSNBC, the BBC World News, ITV News, ABC News and Russian State Television. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.